Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we're joined by Kyle Davis, a behavioralist from Macquarie Pediatrics. We've known him for a few years. He worked with Liam and he is one of a few therapists that we're going to have on from Macquarie. Behavior is a big, big topic and this is a big, big episode and we are so excited to be able to bring this to you because we asked a lot of questions from IEPs to in-home therapy to what to look for and we got some really great answers. So we hope you're going to enjoy this conversation. We hope it brings you a little peace and ease and knowledge because knowledge is power. So here's our good friend, Kyle Davis. Kyle, it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast. It's been a quick minute since I've seen you guys, but yes. For our listeners, will you just tell them a little bit about yourself? So my name is Kyle Davis. I know this wonderful family because I was one of their son's providers. I am a certified BCBA, board certified behavior analyst. I have a bachelor's degree in history from Purdue University, a teaching certificate from Western Governors University, uh, my master's in education from Arizona State University, and then the credential of the BCBA. I have worked in ABA for a little over five years now, and I have recently moved to California in August of 2016, and I've loved it ever since then. How did you become a, a service provider? What motivated you to do this? So prior to working in ABA, I was a teacher in the state of Indiana where I grew up and did my undergrad work for about a year or two and one of the class it was a very private small Montessori school uh, total enrollment was like a hundred kids all around from first to sixth grade the math teacher across the hall um, her son has an autism diagnosis and she actually founded um, I'm from Columbus Indiana she founded the Columbus Autism Network she was really big into autism making it known and she would bring her son out because again, it was a very small family oriented school. And he and I just got to know each other. And she was like, I think you're really good with him and suggested I just take a look into this. And that was the beginning of the end, I guess you could say, because that set me on this journey of ABA and I've never looked back. If you could tell our listeners what a behavioralist is and what you do. So yeah, it's a little, there's a few different facets to that, but to answer your first question, a behavioralist addresses challenging behaviors, um, not only within the autism community, but also within, you know, the Down syndrome, oppositional defined disorders, like really any child that has what we would consider maladaptive or non-functional behaviors. We come in, we identify what the barriers are, what the skills need to be that are more age appropriate, and then we develop treatment plans and co coordination and collaboration in an in-home setting with the parents and you know all the other providers of services in the home. Now, as I met you guys, that was through a school setting. And so it's a little bit different for a school setting. A behavioralist works, not necessarily kids that have autism diagnoses, but children that just have deficits in behavior, terms of maladaptive behaviors, like they're eloping, they're hitting, they're running out of the room, that kind of stuff. 
but we make sure that they are able to access to curriculum is that's our big keyword is so we figure out if they're off task how to make them more on task if they are you know again displaying aggression behaviors how to reduce those and of course, if they are having social challenges on how to integrate them more into their peers um, environment. So that kind of stuff. ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. That's like the big um, overarching reach of things. That's what my degree is really for, is for Applied Behavior Analysis. And then it's be through that degree that allowed me to get that BCBA, the Board Certified Behavior Analyst Certificate. So ABA is something that's kind of, that is thrown around to parents as far as different services that are out there. Can you tell us when they should start seeking ABA and what does that look like? I, I, I feel like when a child is younger, they say in home, like you had said, and then does it transition into school or do they, do they exist at the same, can they exist at the same time? Good question. So just kind of again, taking it piece by piece. So like you said, I am not certified to do this, but like a uh, licensed psychiatrist would be able to diagnose an autism diagnosis about the age of three, like around the age of three years old is when we are really able to make that diagnosis. Now you can start to see deficits in language skills around the age of 18 months. And the agency that you guys are familiar with that I work with, we do have some programs designed for children at the age of 18 months to just kind of catch them up to speed. And then about the time of three, that's when they would go to like a regional center or a psychiatrist and get that diagnosis. If they get that diagnosis, then it's a little bit easier path to get the ABA services because ABA services in home are funded through insurance departments like Kaiser, Magellan, that kind of stuff. And so my supervisor has really taught me to look at it as ABA is like a prescription. And so you need to have some kind of, not necessarily disease, but you need to have an ailment. You need to have a reason for us to prescribe you that ABA. So you can start ABA as young as three years of age. And then The oldest client that I've ever worked with was back in a center in Indiana, and he was 22 years of age. Now, out here in California, it's a little bit different, and insurances have also changed that they they won't give us, like, the golden ticket anymore. Like, they do want to start to look at, like, okay, you've been doing this program for X number of years. When is the end going to happen? Now, we can't give them a guaranteed date, but they do want us to be striving towards what we call a transition to more adaptive skills. And that usually happens around the ages of 13, 14, when if we've done our job as behavioralists right, they aren't running out, they aren't screaming, they aren't having those challenging behaviors anymore. And then you guys as parents are able to address the behavioral stuff, but if they still have skill deficits, maybe it's like they don't know how to do their laundry. They don't know how to you know, make a transaction in a, a restaurant or something like that. Those are considered more adaptive skills. And so ABA doesn't really cover that. Again, that's per the insurance sources. They are like, that's a different provider. So yeah. But then to kind of go off on your thing, yes, there are certainly opportunities for ABA to provide services in home as well as in school. In fact, I have two clients right now that I'm their supervisor for in the school setting and then also in the home environment too. Because it kind of going back to the main point, it's different funding sources with the school is funded through the district, through the in-home services, it's funded through insurance agencies. Yeah. And what are the benefits of in-home? 
the benefits of in-home are obviously it's in the child's most natural environment. Like if you, I've worked in a clinic and I've also done in-home and both have their benefits. But again, when you're in a clinic, it's much more clinical, obviously. But in the home, you're working with like, okay, mom's making dinner, dad's doing some work, you know, siblings are running around. It's much more natural for the child. And then it's also much more likely that we can have that parent buy-in because that's something that we do strive for is to get parents to also participate in the session. If you know you're doing a clinic-based session, I've seen it before where parents are just like, here's my kid. I'll be back in like two, three hours, you know, do what you do. But in the home, parents really can't escape that. It's like you, we, we really need you to be part of this training because again, we view ourselves as just someone that's giving you guys the parents. We're trying to empower you so that we don't want to be here for the rest of your child's life too. Like we, we love your families. We love being a part of them, but we do view our services as somewhat temporary too. We don't want your child to always need someone there that can provide them with strategies and prompts. You guys as their parents, that's your role as parents too. And so we come in there to give you guys those beneficial tools as well too. So that's, I think is the biggest beneficial is that parents are there and then it's a much more natural environment too. So I just want to clarify, because you had said something 18 months to three years, like you can assess at 18 months. I'm not a parent. So but what I've heard from is that parents at the age of 18 months can start to see like, especially if there's older siblings involved, like, okay, Mikey was walking at this age, my child is not. So definitely around the age of 18 months is when you start to see that developmental delay, as we call it around the age of three is when we try and diagnose it as early as possible. Of course, if a child for whatever reason isn't diagnosed at the age of three does not mean that they're never gonna get diagnosed. But I've seen children that don't get diagnosed until they're 11, 12 years old. It's just because they weren't having as big a delays. They were hiding it. They were masking it as we would say. And so they didn't get the diagnosis till later on in life. But yeah, 18 months is when you start to really look at to see the child. And then we work with it in our clinic to try and, you know, do intensive ABA therapy to get them to where they need to be by the age of three, because of that, the age of three is when they do start to get diagnosed. If a child has autism, they start to see differences at about 18 months, and then parents can start to support, but then around three years is when they would receive probably the funding and the insurance and everything. Right. But for Down syndrome, since it's, you know, usually within the first couple weeks of birth, what would that path look like for someone with Down syndrome? Okay, I think it would still apply around the three-year cutoff of being able to get services. I, I agree with you, yeah. Uh, a good friend of my mom's, her child has Down syndrome, and I've known her since she was like 20, now she's 40, 50. So it is pretty apparent at birth, like you said, that, you know, there is a Down syndrome diagnosis. But I think insurance companies are like, let's see if there is a delay versus like, they're just going to have a little bit of challenges. Like there's, there's a difference to them of like, okay, they're just a little bit delayed versus like they need the intensive ABA therapy. Because again, insurances have changed over the recent years where they used to kind of, like I said, be like, okay, you have a diagnosis that you have some kind of delay. Here's a 40 hour a week program. We're going to fund it all the way. It's great. Go with it. And now they're really looking at it as like, is this truly medically necessary? So yeah, if there if if you got a good BCBA and a good support system in place that can kind of argue that to the insurance provider, then I would say the earliest starting point would still be around that three years of age. 
Well, we didn't pursue ABA services until school, and I didn't even know ABA, the, the technical name of it. I always, I always heard an aid. Do we want to maybe look what, toward an aid? What would be the difference? So if parents are going into an IEP and they're trying to figure out what supports they want for their children and we're looking for behavior, because behavior is really something that sometimes they'll use to determine placement and they'll use that as something in their corner when a child the, now they the, is who when you say the, they the school the school yeah. will or the school the school district so when a parent will go into an IEP and, and a lot of times we'll go in there blind like we don't have all of uh, the information and the lingo down so sometimes we'll be denied placement or they'll will be you know maybe push towards a different placement by the school district based upon behavior. But an IEP is the placement would be in the least restrictive environment with supports to access the curriculum. So ABA falls underneath that support, right? correct? If a child can function in the classroom with that support accessing the curriculum, that's what what we're going for. Can you, is there a, or let me ask you, is there a difference between an aid and an ABA? When we, when I hear aid, I think, you know, someone that's been supplied by LAUSD in the school district. Now, if you're wanting someone that has ABA background, then the term is uh, BII. And I think you guys are familiar with that term. BII would be someone like your child's one-on-one -on -one support. And BII stands for Behavior Intervention Instructor. So that's like the boots on the ground is like I say, the one-on-one -on -one with the child. And then my role would be the BID, Behavior Intervention Director. Yeah, so that's the fundamental difference is that no disrespect to, again, the district, but when I think of aid, it's just someone that they've gotten that maybe worked there 20, 30 years and is great, but doesn't necessarily always have an ABA background. If you're looking for someone with an ABA background, you're really looking for that BII slash BID support. An aid can help in a classroom. Like a teacher's aid is basically what an aid is. They can help. They help in the classroom and they support the teacher and it's and it's academically more so correctly because a BII doesn't really support academically it's for behavior yes good point yeah an aide depending on what their function in the classroom could be someone that supports the child academically it could be someone that's grading papers again it's a bigger brief versus a BI that really is one-on-one -on -one laser focused on that child providing them with the behavior strategies under the supervision of that BID yeah so good point there Lori yeah because an, an aid can also help other children. An aid can help other children and then just, you know, taking it further, an aid can um, take the children to the bathroom. That's something that the BI can't do. Like, again, they're just there to deal solely with behaviors. And so, yeah, an aid could be like, and I don't want to like get too, like you said, political here, but I've heard of some aids being assigned to like two or three kids in the classroom. Whereas again, that BII per the IEP, which you guys know is a legal document says, that so-and-so is there just for so-and-so purposes. They are not to provide any other support, you know, unless like, you know, the child is eating lunch with them and they're trying to facilitate some social goals, but they're not responsible for the actions of the other child. They're really just there to provide that one-on-one -on -one support. And, and also with a, a BII and a BID, that relationship is more like, I know for our experience, we when like when you were the BID and then also with our new BID, we can communicate with you. So there's more of an open communication. There's input as far as with goals. And, you know, to be honest, we've always felt like the team that you are on, his behavior team, 
is the team that actually sees him correctly and pushes him towards his potential more so. And also for more terminology, I always thought of the the BII was a non-public aid, if that if that makes sense. Like I felt like we could have more easily gotten an aid from the district, and then we had had a push to say I wanted. And 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 in in our IEP, I remember that that terminology, non-public aid, which then became the BII and BID that we got, um, which was someone that was from uh, outside of the district that that would come onto campus. Yeah, giving your listeners, again, more of a vocabulary definition here. Yeah, non-public agency, we refer to it as the NPA. And so I don't know exactly your guys' process, but yeah, the default position is to always kind of offer the LAUSD aid first because it's just that's their standard protocol. Or the district. The district, yeah. So let's say you guys went with the district aid and then let's say for whatever reason you guys didn't feel that that was appropriate, then then the next step in the hierarchy would be to go get that NPA, non-public agency aid. As I'm sure you guys saw, it's a fight, but it can be done. But also they can, our listeners and going into an IEP, you can ask for right off the bat an MPA. And, you know, it's our personal experience. It's been better communication. It's been better support. You know, there are, there are a few times when maybe someone's absent, but there's communication, whereas sometimes somebody could not be there, an aide could not be there, and your child might not have an aide all day. Well, to be quite honest, too, I've had times where I don't really have an issue if, if our BII is going to help pass out papers, let's say, is going to maybe do some some little bit of classwork because it is also nice to have, you know, that's an adult in the class that all the students see. Um, it's nice to just make uh, things a little more smooth where it's not like, well, that person is just for that isn't, kid. You well, know? isn't that a thing? Isn't that a confidentiality thing where not necessarily, see, it's different for Liam, obviously, because his his diagnosis makes it a little bit more apparent that that person is right there for him. But I recall in, an, in a classroom once where somebody identified, should we do a gift for so-and-so's aid? And there was, this yeah, parent, there was parents got upset. Parents were, look, they're... That is your that's confidentiality that and 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 of course for Steven and I we're like what? Yeah, <laughs> we no, didn't well. know we could be secret. <laughs> but also our a Liam's aide is sitting next to him the entire right. day. So I mean it's pretty obvious he's she or whoever the aide is is for that child. But I didn't mind that there was some little bit of classwork maybe that was gonna be uh, pushed on to our BII, but I felt like that if I had the district uh, aid, then that person was available to the teacher to do what they need to do do a lot more and and then not maybe focus on the child as much to go to your question Lori, about like isn't that what we would call like a, a violation of the hipaa like and i don't know the acronym what hipaa stands for maybe you guys do like i know so many acronyms but that one i'm just lost with but to your point, yes, it should be somewhat confidential about who the child is working for. But then it also kind of falls back onto the comfort level of the parents too. Cause I've like, I haven't seen it in my time, but there I've heard from my fellow um, coworkers that yes, some parents are like, we don't want anyone to know, like it needs to be hush hush. And, you know, we do strive for that. We do strive to respect the wishes of the parents. But if, you know, let's say little Johnny is having a rough day and that one-on-one BII is always the person going there to support the kid, then kids are smart and they're gonna figure out like, oh, that person is here for Johnny. 
it's just, like I said, we don't live in a bubble. So it is kind of a tricky situation. And then of course too, your son's aide has been with him for a number of years too. I'm sure everybody's figured out what they are there for too. So yeah. it's just like, right. yeah, sh- they're here for him. We know it. And so it's kind of, yeah, it's in theory should be kept confidential and we do all strive for that, but it doesn't always work out that way for X number of reasons. So HIPAA is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. It's a federal law that requires the creation of national standards to protect sensitive patient health information from being disclosed without the patient's consent or knowledge. So that goes even beyond having an aid. That 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 would go across the board and just and but for parents to bring that up sometimes in classrooms, teachers will say things out loud or, or talk and, and just know that you do have a law behind you saying that that is, is not allowed and shouldn't occur. And like you said, to your point, Lori, it doesn't just cover that one-on-one. It covers like the whole range of medical confidentiality, like diabetes status, like all kinds of stuff like that is covered under HIPAA. So we were talk- so we got on a little bit of a tangent finding the defini- the definition between the the difference between asking for an aid and asking for a BII and the BID and those services. And I just want to clarify for the listeners that that is something going into your IEP. One, it's going to benefit you when maybe they're trying to say because of behavior that your child shouldn't be in an inclusive classroom with his peers because that's always the goal. Now, there are some, sometimes parents prefer a, a smaller classroom or a special day classroom, and that's definitely your prerogative. But if that isn't something that you want and you feel like you're being pushed, remember that it's with supports, and that support would include a BII and a BID team uh, and if they're then suggesting, because a lot of times the district will come in with what the path they want you to go down and they're suggesting an aid, you can request the BII and BID. If they say, let's try it out with the aid first and see how it goes, you can you can hold your ground. And obviously, you're probably going to have a little bit of a fight ahead of you, but it's doable and it gets done. And it, if that's the path you want to go down, then that's the path you go down. I never feel comfortable in any situation when someone says, let's just try it my way first and then we'll see how it goes. I mean, it could be in, in so many different ways. I just, <laughs> I just go, okay, great. You, I've kind of locked in. I mean, because, mm-hmm. you know, in your mind, you're signing a, a, a document here that's a legal document. So you're you're signing it, I mean, to, to actually go through and say, hey, you know, after two months, I realize this isn't working at all. You have to get a new meeting together. You have to get everyone together. And I mean, you kind of, Back to times the lost, start. Yeah. and and especially with kids, where you know you don't get that time back, and it, and at a certain there's certain years that are just the most beneficial as far as input, and so many things can happen in in that in that time frame. Oh, and man, so you wait two you, months, and that's just, I mean the school year is not long enough. Not to bad not the district at all, but like you said, if you do that route, and if that's the route that you have that faith in the district, and you're like, okay, I'll try it, but then if you change your mind. It is often sometimes just more work to get everybody back in because then everybody's got to clear their schedules and then make, and then it's like, well, okay, well, maybe we change it just a little bit. It's like, let's just make sure we do it right the first time. I, to your point, like you said, the school year isn't long enough, but it's also like, we want to make sure we're doing it right at the beginning so we don't have to keep meeting over and over again. You guys are great. I love to see you all, but like, we don't, like, 
Well, and I also say that, you know, once you, you backpedal like that, then you're probably going to be required to have a new assessment done, and that's going to push a couple of months. And then before you know it, it it's it really, you know, half the year's gone, and it's not as simple as just try this out for a couple weeks or whatever. No, exactly. Very good point. Very good point. Yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah. To encourage parents, behaviors are behaviors. And we, you know, even as adults, we know that if we have a behavior, we just, we as adults change our behaviors to things that are healthier and more conducive for our life. And so it is accessible, but we don't want, we don't want to create something to where now we have to undo as much as we can, as much as we can. We don't want to put ourselves in that situation. Agreed. You had made a nice point, Kyle, and we had said this before in podcasts before that all of our therapies, our in-home therapies, we, when Liam was young, you know, before three, actually, we, you know, he had a couple therapies a day. We use that as teaching moments for us. And you mentioned that that is the goal, especially in home. But because we can communicate with you so well and find out details in school that we may not have as a parent that isn't attending school with your child, you know, you're, you're kind of relying on the school or, or your child who may be really young at this point to tell you these details. And how many children are going to tell on themselves? Yeah, no, they're, they're not like saying, any typical right. children that aren't going to, you know, it take two years later, they say, yeah, I did that. So it's really great to have you guys there where now we can get some information and then say, oh, and I can pick your brain. Well, what, what do you recommend I do in this situation? And I can even take that home in, in schoolwork uh, at home. So uh, that is just something I, I didn't want to let go before we moved on to other things. You know what I was curious about is you had mentioned, first of all, when you say mal, what is it? Maladaptive. Maladaptive. Can you define that for our listeners? Maladaptive behavior is just what you might call in layman's terms, bad behaviors. You know, aggression, shouting out, screaming, even the scripting where, you know, the child is just repeating what they've heard in a TV show or movie or song. Elopement, which we define as running away, that kind of stuff. Those are what we would consider maladaptive behaviors in home. Now, for school, it's different because those still apply, but you might also have like the child is not beginning their work right away. You know, they're not remaining on task, they're not having appropriate social interactions. So, maladaptive behaviors are again, quote unquote, those bad behaviors or anything that doesn't really relate to the school curriculum that they're expected to be doing. Behavior is a big thing. And I think behaviors can be overwhelming because you see a behavior. And my experience has been that it, it carries a lot more weight than maybe if you have a typical child. The, all of a sudden, your your brain goes to a, a dark, dark place of this is forever. And what will this lead to? And I have failed. And what does this mean? And will it stop? And there's there's so many places that we go as parents can can you talk to parents about that, uh, just about those behaviors? And, and maybe I'd even encourage parents to stay away from the word bad behaviors, you know, bad, like as far as because I think parents carry that weight. Parents carry the weight of now my child is doing all of these things, whereas you know, to be honest, some of the, a lot of times how I deal with one of Liam's behaviors is I'll take a minute to think, what if, what would I do if Sophia did that? Did Sophia ever do this? Now, most of the time, Sophia's done it. So can you speak upon that just for just for the parents, just for some comfort and guidance? Absolutely. And yeah, to your point, that's something that we don't use. Like in our terminology, we don't say bad behaviors. That's why we do say the term maladaptive. It is a bit more technical, but it really doesn't, 
it does take away that connotation of like, these are bad. It's just not what is most appropriate for the situation or the most, even I would say too functional. Like if you're asking a child to read the assignment and they're over there scripting their story or running out of the room, that's not a functional behavior that you're asking for them to do. You're asking them to read the assignment. And so that's why we don't use that term really, except for when we're trying to break it down really and get the understanding. I do see your point, Lori. Yeah, we don't like the term bad behavior because to us, behavior is everything. Like talking to you is a behavior. Walking across the room is a behavior. Behavioralists use the term, and this might make you guys laugh. We use the term dead man's test. If a dead man can do it, then it's not a behavior. So anything that a dead man can't do is a behavior. So if, a, if you're like, well, he's laying down there. Well, yeah, a dead man can do that. So that's not really a behavior. Like, yeah, sure. He's sitting there. That's great. That's fine. Totally cool. So yeah, myself too, when I first got into ABA, I did think of behavior as like that bad thing. Like, oh, they're acting up, but really behavior is just any kind of action or like response in the environment. Can you talk a little bit about what benefits a child? So if I see, I know there was a time when Liam would actually wake up in the middle of the night and go to the front door and he opened it a couple of times or a couple of times he couldn't reach, he couldn't reach really high. And I would find him like crying at the front door because I, I don't know if he was dreaming, whatever he was doing, I guess that would be considered attempted eloping, but I don't think it was with the intention of running away. It was just something that was frightening. Yeah, thank goodness we had the deadbolt. Right, and that he w- couldn't reach as high as our locks go. Yeah. So it was really frightening to us. And, you know, we had that point where we thought, what does this mean? How long will it last? Is he in danger? Okay, so one thing that I always advise parents for any type of behavior is to first rule out, is there a biological component to it? So like if the child is not necessarily eating all the time, maybe there's something gastrointestinal going on. So it kind of sounds like a cop out to some parents sometimes, but really you need to make sure that there's nothing biologically happening because then if we're instituting what we would call a treatment, like to make them eat, but they are physically having pain to eat, then we're just causing that child more harm. So I always say, let's rule out any kind of biological stuff. If there is no biological function, then we can of course address it. And the main thing that we try and do as behavioralists to your point of like, how do we go about addressing this is that behavioralists operate under four main principles of behavior. There are four, what we call functions of behavior. And you can use the acronym EATS. E is for escape. The child wants to escape the demand. They want to run away. They're hitting you because they know if they hit you, you're not going to make them do the assignment or whatever the task is. A is for attention. So they're screaming and they're running away because they want your attention. And of course, they're going to get it if they're doing that kind of stuff. That's a really hard one to address. T is for access to tangibles. They want something from you. They want that cookie. They want their TV show. They want their toy that they have. And then S is for self-stimulatory. And those are more, again, of for lack of better words, the stereotypical autism behaviors, the hand flapping, the scripting, that kind of stuff. Those are the stereotypical behavior. So they're doing it, I say, because it gives them, again, some sort of regulation. They may be doing the hand flapping because they're excited, they're happy, that sort of stuff. So once you identify what the function of the behavior is, then you have to figure out what the replacement behavior is. So if 
Johnny is hitting me because he wants my attention. I will teach Johnny to tap me on the shoulder to say, hey, Kyle, I want something from you. If they're doing it for escape, then we block them from escape and make them complete the demand. And then they can ask for a break, which is a more functional and appropriate way to get that escape. Again, if you guys are doing work with your kids and if one of them is like, hey, I need to take a break, you're gonna give them that break. But if they're gonna hit you, I know you guys as parents, you're gonna be like, that's not gonna get anything from us. Like, we're just having a good time here, I guess. So, yeah. Because when you talk about the self-stimulatory uh, actions, parents get really self-conscious about that. I know that, you know, when Liam was younger and it would be because, you know, his speech wasn't completely in or was coming in, maybe he'd make a noise or he'd howl because it's easier because other people don't understand him. But can you give parents some guidance or support? Because sometimes behaviors, especially out in public and people stare or it's embarrassing. And then you have to deal with the emotion of, I'm embarrassed by my child. And that's, that's real. And parents carry guilt because of that. And so can we talk about that and, and bring some ease? So again, going off, like I said, about the replacement behavior. So we have to identify, and that one's a little bit harder to identify what the child is getting out of it, because, you know, depending on their, um, not necessarily their cognitive ability, but their vocal ability, we could ask them like, why do you do this? Oh, because I'm, ha I'm happy. Okay, then here's some alternatives that you can do. You can say I'm happy. You can jump up and down. You can, you know, give them that alternative replacement behavior and then reinforce that by giving them lots of attention, lots of praise, like showing them that you're really happy. Because at the end of the day, the child's biggest reinforcer is the parent. Like really, you are the one that gives them all the good stuff. You give them the food, the shelter, the toys, whatever they want, really. So you giving them that praise will give them the motivation to be like, and I have a child right now, a client, I don't have a child, I have a client right now that is, is engaging that stereotypical behavior. And we've kind of just, you know, put his hand down and given him the replacement behavior of like, I'm excited. And now he does it and he looks at us when he's like, he'll start to put his hand up a little bit, like he's gonna do it. And then he catches himself. He's so adorable. He's six. And he'll like look at us and like, I'm excited. I'm like, yes, you are. And we go <laughs> crazy about it. Because again, <laughs> he knows that he's getting reinforcement for it. And it is, again, depending on the function, maybe it's because, you know, um, it's too loud. And then so again, to your point, Lori, it is somewhat of an embarrassing situation, but maybe that child just needs headphones when they're out in public. And, you know, that's a different conversation to have. But it's also a teaching moment for the community of like, my child has this need of like, it's too loud for them. You may not think it's too loud, but they are saying it's too loud for them. And I, as the parent, are going to do what I can to make sure that they feel supported. So, I mean, it kind of goes back to like, again, figuring out why they're engaging that behavior. If it is a stereotypical behavior, it's still serving a function for that child. It's just really hard to figure out what the function is a lot of times because that child may not even have the ability to express why they're doing it. So, and I, I, again, to your listeners, Lori, I definitely sympathize with you guys. I know that it's in those moments, your child is acting up and you're just feeling the way of the world, but know that for them, it's, there's something that there's some reason that they're doing it. We just have to figure out why. And then a good behavioralist will definitely give you guys strategies on making it a more appropriate replacement behavior we say. So yeah. We, we feel for you guys. It's impossible not to work with these families and not to develop love and respect for them too. So we don't want you guys to feel like 
oh, I really need to run a target, but you know, my husband's at work right now, so I can't go because my son might have a moment. Like, we don't want that for you guys. We want you to be able to live your lives as traditionally, I don't like to say normally, but as traditionally as possible. Like if you need to run to the store to grab milk, go with, go to the store to grab the milk and take your child with you and know that we're gonna work with them on getting them to be able to regulate. Cause that's really what it is too, is to regulate their emotions too. Well, you know, it feels like such a social stigma, you know, and so I think that's legitimate for parents, but also I think we can also take a little breath and know that there's things I see in Liam that he does on his own time he likes to do. He, he plays with these three bears. He likes to just keep kind of juggling them, letting them throw in the air a little bit and let them fall. He likes to take decks of cards and sort them. He likes to take cards and kind of put them through his hands and let them fall into the ground. These are things that are soothing for him for whatever reason. While maybe he's watching something or listening or reading, even when he's reading a book, he'll do do it sometimes. And to me, I kind of go back to, I remember in improv, there were people that were just, at, in improv, they would slap their legs all the time. They didn't know what to do with their hands. They'd slap their legs, slap their, and that was, and, and they didn't even know they were doing it or, or making any noise, and we'd be like, well, we're, we're kind of being distracted here by your slapping your, your legs. I know it's giving you some comfort in a nervous situation, but, you know, maybe work on that. But also people, you know, always rub their hands together or push their glasses up with their finger. I mean, of course, glasses can fall down, but people adjust their glasses all the time. It's just a, it's a, it's a movement. People talk with their hands. These are things that are socially uh, allowed because we're kind of used to it. But I think it's it's the same vein. It's this comfort thing or what you were saying, a regulation. And it just takes on so much more weight, I think. First of all, like you said, that's the best way to figure out if it is a self-stimulatory behavior is, will the child do it when there is no one watching them? Because like you said, we've ruled out it's not for escape. It's not to get anything. Is it for attention? So I've never done it, but I've seen in case studies where they will literally put a child in like an enclosed room and just be like, will the child do this behavior when no one is watching? So good point there. Like, yeah, that's really like you said, is if the child's doing it when no one's around, then it really is just to kind of self-soothe themselves. It's not to get attention, it's not to get access to anything. So, and then mine, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, like, but sometimes I just like to pop my neck. Like, it's just like a feeling that feels good to me. And I know that I do it in situations. I did it, honestly, Lori, two minutes ago while you guys were talking. And I just like, it's just something that obviously you guys are here watching me, but I just do it. And again, it feels good to me. Like, I like to feel my neck I know that's probably really weird to your listeners, but I just like to feel my neck pop sometimes. And if it's a good one, I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's all right. And then people are looking at me like, sorry, I just like to pop my neck. Well, these are typical things. You know, this is typical things that, that people do. And, and we kind of get so hard on ourselves as parents of, of children with disabilities, and especially, you know, for us children with Down syndrome, where you, you get this overly like a, like a microscope on yourself. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And then especially like you said, too, not even like in the Down syndrome, but if your child has autism and they are engaging in those stereotypical behaviors at high rates, then like you said, the microscope is definitely under those parents. Like, let's just be honest. Like if your child is scripting or doing hand flapping constantly, you definitely feel like you have a target on your back. And again, to your audience, Lori, we as behaviorists, we see that and we want you to know that we are here to support you during those times too. Like, absolutely. Now, let me ask you a question for some advice for the non-parent, the grandparent, the teacher, the friend, the aunt, the person in the grocery store, when they witness these behaviors, what is the most supportive thing they can do because I know that people get afraid to look. Uh, they look away. They don't say anything. They get uh, 
uncomfortable and awkward, or they'll say something totally inappropriate. So what advice would you give uh, that parents can even give when people ask them, what, sh- what should I do? How should I respond? And that's what I was going to say. Honestly, the best advice, if you again, if you're just like in the grocery store, walking by and you see a child having, you know, a moment, whether it's they're having a tantrum, a meltdown, or they're engaging in those behaviors, is to, if it is something that is pretty severe, like they are having that tantrum or meltdown, just to ask the parent, like, are you okay? Because again, the focus seems to go on to the child and the parents there to support the child, but who's supporting the parent during that moment? Like, are you okay as parents? Like, are you feeling supported? Do you need help? Is there someone I can call? Like, and nine times out of 10, I'm sure the parent will be like, I've got this. You know, they've been doing this for X number of years. I know what strategies are, but I think that is to, and I think like you said too, Lori, our default is to go to the, what's grabbing our attention is to the child. Like they're having this meltdown. And like I said, if they're having this behavior because it's for attention, staring at them and saying like, what a bad child that is, or like whatever, you're just giving that child what they want. So now you've made it a hundred times worse for that parent. So I would just recommend just checking in with the parent and be like, are you okay? Like, do you, what supports do you need? What can I do? And the parent again, might be like, I'm okay. Thank you for asking. But it's also just going to be like, that parent is probably really appreciative that you at least took the time to not be the one that's like, oh, that's really awkward, embarrassing. I'm just going to walk away. Like they're, they're used to that. Let's just, again, be honest. They're used to those people that just walk by and don't see the situation. And even if you're not going to be helpful, like if the parent's like, I got this, you at least acknowledge that like, hey, I'm here to support you. And I know parents will be like, thank you so, so much. That parent will remember you opposed to the parent that just walked by. And that would be a pretty severe thing that you witness. I mean, obviously, there's things that you see different movements or different, you know, different things that just we would say weren't typical of a typical person. Now, it's easy with Liam and, and people with Down syndrome that that's a it's a physical thing that, that most people can identify with at, at, at the end. But still, I like our, the thought of asking the parents, hey, you need anything? You, yes. Can I help you yes. or, or I see you or even just make eye contact? I know for me, making eye contact and saying you you okay because it, I don't think the you okay is uh, do you, do you have a gra- grasp on this I think it's you know just on a human level how you doing mom you you identify and you see and I mean I know for me going out into public when there might be a behavior or especially when Liam's speech was coming in so different sounds would come out and I I would be so self-conscious and parents and kids they stare and if just once somebody would have just even just looked in my eyes just to make that contact of you know that human contact it didn't even have to be words just a human acknowledgement that like Kyle's popping his neck no one's looking at him like it's the end of the world right it's it's you make that human contact because we all have things that we do in their habits it's just the eyes are on our child because that they have a disability and so it becomes something so much more when if the the people who are staring would just turn that lens around and look into their life they I'm sure they could find something that they we do can all find things all the time Come on. I have about a list Um, One thing I would like to just kind of give your listeners again some more advice is to do that check-in very neutrally because again if that you don't know what's going on like you're walking by you're seeing that child in that moment but again if it's for that attention seeking component 
any kind of reaction, whether it's even just like, oh my God, are you okay? It's very comforting to the parent, but that child then also gotten some attention for their behavior. So just doing, well, if, if mm, I'm look, observing a child and I'm seeing some new challenging behaviors and I don't know what the function is, we do tend as behaviorists to remain very neutral because we're like, we don't know if this is for attention. We're still trying to figure out what it is. So we don't want to give it any attention because even if it is for like escape, it can very quickly shift to a more um, attention seeking component. So just, I, uh, I give you guys that encouragement to, you know, check in with the parents, but do so very neutrally. Cause again, too, it's also very like, um, it can be very upsetting for the parents who are like, oh, now all the eyes are on me. Like I was just, we were in this aisle now and now I got people from three aisles over coming to see what's going on. Like just do it very, you know, I think it's good, like you said, to check in, but do so neutrally to still preserve that parent's dignity as well too. And the child's dignity as well too. That child doesn't really need 15 eyes on them, so to say, when they're having a moment. Like that's really embarrassing for the child. They may not recognize it, but it is, you know, kind of taking away their... Um, their dignity. Yeah, absolutely. So treat them like you would want to be treated, basically. Hmm, that's a golden rule. Isn't, I was going to say, isn't that like the basic tenet of a lot of yeah. things here in life? Like Maybe just start with that. It might be good, right? On all levels. Mm -hmm. So with behavior, for parents to know that it's a process. Oh, absolutely. And to have patience, because patience is needed with the behavior and also with yourselves. You were talking about teaching moments and taking those teaching moments. And then, you know, with, uh, with Liam, because I'll admit the card thing, because it's so, it can be so persistent and it had become something that slowly became part of his comfort. You know, one day I just sat with his cards and I sorted his cards and I did what he does and it was really soothing. Oh yeah. And, and I would encourage or invite parents to do that. Like if there's something that, it obviously it becomes something other than it is like, this is something that kids that your child's doing to comfort himself, but it becomes this thing inside of you. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, where have I failed? What am I not doing? What am I not providing? Um, just will, will he do this for the rest of his life? What will it mean? How will people accept it? Just there's so, such a laundry list. And I just, besides the patience and knowing it's a process, I, I just sat down to see what, what it was all about. And I got some insight into why he likes it so much. And it didn't, it doesn't weigh so heavy on me now. Like you said, for your example, Lori, like you went there and did the cards, but like, let's say it's something that, you know, your child is physically doing with their body. Just like you said, take a step back and really think about like, what are they getting from this? Is it something that I can give them a more functional replacement with? Or is this just, again, truly their way of expressing an emotion and as behavioralist you know it's kind of hard sometimes i'll be honest like we don't get too much into emotions we are you know we are portrayed as those very you know strict by the book kind of people but i always think about like if this is an emotional outlet for that child i don't want to take that away from them that's the last thing i want to do like they like again just being very transparent with you they already have enough that they're working against in certain regards i don't want to take something away from them that is giving them joy or giving them an outlet for you know how they feel like if they're being aggressive then we absolutely need to address that but if this is a way for them to express a positive emotion then let's figure out a more appropriate way to do it if we can and then you know i've come across some parents that are like that's just my child's way of saying i'm happy and i don't care who sees it so you know i think it kind of goes to the parents comfort level too and again 
I think to that end, if you're okay with it as a parent, that's your right and let the rest of the world just deal with it. Like if you, if it's something you want to address, talk to your behavioralist. And if it's something you're okay with, move on with life and just have a good ride. That kind of goes hand in hand with an epiphany I had a couple of episodes ago where we were talking about when Liam was a toddler, he would stick his tongue out a fair amount. And I was pretty persistent about anytime I saw it, I put my finger on his tongue and say tongue in and kind of push his tongue in. And we do it over and over. And in the podcast episode, I initially told that story because I said, I, I just like I say to my kids, say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, turn the lights off, just correcting, right, of what kind of activity I would like them to, to hold on to them for, for their for their future. Good manners, that kind of stuff. Right. But what it was, it didn't really have anything to do with anything but his physical appearance. And so I kind of had to look at myself and say, why did I do that? I Did I do it really for the good of his... Maybe maybe speech. We figured out it could be it could help speech, but the baseline was I was doing it because it was something that I believe was going to embarrass me, and so that was the correction I made. and And so if I can look at myself that way as a lesson, I'll start to do that more and, and see what really is best. If it is something that's really giving him joy, let him do some do it a bit, right? And I appreciate your honesty, Boo. Oh yeah, well you said that in, think the, that in the episode I think that parents, too. But I think that I think that as parents, we there's so much guilt and there's so that that comes along with the package. And if we can just let go of that guilt, and you know, the good news uh, uh, with the tongue is it is better for his speech. You know, I could even put it in 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 a place where I, I like you'd want your kid to be to have a, a clean haircut and, and dress nice because how they present themselves. It was kind of on that track, but it was really more, uh, I didn't want him to be stereotypical in my mind of, of, of someone that, that wasn't fully as much as they could be. They weren't, at, weren't, they weren't from, reaching but, their truest potential. Yeah. And but I, I think, I think also that comes from a place and what we address here on the podcast is those fears that are ingrained in us from you know, from go, from even before go, we have these, these fears. And so when you go into something, you can't come, you're not coming from a clean slate. You're just like, Oh, no, what are they? What will people think? And, you know, the goal is to get to that place where we don't carry these fears that don't belong to us. We don't carry the baggage that belongs to another time. We don't, the, the goal is that. And, and when we can, if we can get to that place to where sticking out your tongue, I mean, Every kid sticks out his tongue. To carry that extra weight and baggage doesn't help from even correcting and regulating the behaviors that need to be corrected and regulated. It doesn't help us. And I think that's the goal. That's, that's our goal. That's where we want to come from is just to have the knowledge and then to, to go forward in what the real moment is. One bit of advice is something that I got from that teacher way back when um, she's still a really good friend of mine. And again, I'm not a parent, but maybe this will speak to you guys as a parent. But when you find out that you're going to have a child of any kind, you automatically start to plan out their life. Like that's just something like that's a given. You're like, okay, they're going to go off and do this kind of stuff. And they're going to play this sport because that's the sport that I played. And you have that total plan of your life. And then, you know, some kind of delay, whether it be Down syndrome or autism comes in, and now you have to completely refigure your life. And that's hard. It's very hard. And I don't think that people give special need parents enough credit that they have to completely readjust everything that they've learned, especially for you guys. Like you have an older child too. That teacher, she has 
she had two daughters that were, when her son was born, she had two daughters that were in high school that were very athletically gifted, very academically gifted too. And now here is a son that she does love very much, but has this disability, this delay. And now she has to be like, well, what I did with those girls isn't gonna work anymore because this is the new reality that I have. So just remembering to be very patient with parents because you're having to relearn a whole new system maybe, like you said. And then one of the first trainings that I ever went through at the agency that I have as a supervisor was an empathy training. And it was, and I always keep that in mind of like, like you said, Lori, parents are sometimes like, do I have to do this forever? I've done this intensive ABA for three years. When is the end journey gonna be? And we don't know as behavioralists, we never say by six years of age, they're gonna be fine. We can't make that determination because circumstances change. And so to have that empathy that too, still too, you do celebrate your child as well too, but it's also somewhat still of a grieving process of like, oh, I've done everything that they said to do. I've got them into ABA, I got them into speech therapy, I got them into this, but I still have more to go. And that's a hard realization I think for some parents to realize is that like, you're doing everything right, but there's still more that's gotta be done. And so just trying to have that empathy for the parents of like, because again, I'm there as a supervisor, maybe an hour to a week, but this is your reality. This is your life. Like I am just like kind of dropping in as a visitor for, like I said, that time. But when I leave, that doesn't mean that the challenging behavior stopped. It doesn't mean that the journey is over. You guys are still dealing with that journey 24 seven. And so we as supervisors, as behavioralists need to be more empathetic. And we just realize, like, you know what? If this parent really can't participate that this day because they're having a rough time, that's okay. And there are, and you guys as parents, I'm gonna give you permission. You're allowed to have rough days. It's okay. Everyone underneath the sun has rough days. Don't think that you're a worse parent by any stretch of the imagination. As I'm speaking to your listeners, Lori, parents, you are okay to have that rough day. So what I'm hearing with empathy is for parents to have empathy for themselves. Yes. And patience for themselves and to just, you know, be present because things do change. And I think it's with anything, really, if if we're caught up in this is how I did it. I mean, I, I, I knew that no matter how I did it with Sophia, it wasn't going to be the same with my second child. And, and it's always going to be different with every human. So not to have that it's different, again, carry the weight any other weight than that it's just different and and every and everything is is different so to just try trying to be present in what's really in 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 front of what what's there because if if we're caught up in how it should be then we're never going to be able to enjoy how it is and see those gifts and see that progress And I know we spent the first three years with so many services coming in and out of the house that there are times when I look back and I've, and I felt like it was all that, all the service, that was my focus. That was like doing this. We got to do it right. We got to get it done. We got to make sure this, why isn't this happening? Where is this milestone? And if I could go back and I mean, obviously all those services were such a gift, but I think I would have breathed a little more maybe not, maybe left more, a gap in between the services, maybe left time for our family to just like enjoy what just happened instead of feeling like it had to be this regimented, there was a way that I needed to do it. And I needed to do it. I think there was a feeling of I needed to do it right. Yeah. Yeah. So for new parents, take take it easy on yourself. Know that this change 
is going to be, be your life. Like any change is going like to be any child. They're your, your life. life. Yeah. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And to your point, Lori, different does not always mean bad. But I think that is the kind of connotation that, oh, this is different. It's not bad. But that's just the way that society thinks of, oh, it's different. That's bad. We don't like that. We want what everybody else has. This is the gift that you guys have. And, you know, some parents, it's a great journey and it's a great gift. So enjoy it. Like it's, and I think to your point, it's a lot of how you perceive it too. So again, parents, like you said, Lloyd, enjoy that time. Like just take a step back and realize like, okay, I'm doing what I need to be doing. And it's like I said, a marathon, not a sprint. Behavior is so important because I feel that it weighs heavy on a lot of the parents. Um, can you tell us a little bit about behavior? early intervention, and what parents can look out for and the things they can do at home. Honestly, trust your gut. If you see that your child is not walking or not communicating at a certain age, there is no person in the world that's going to criticize you for just going with your gut and saying, I would like a medical opinion on this. If your child is in some sort of daycare and they come to you and say, oh, we noticed that he's not walking, go ahead and get that checked out. Get it observed, get a professional's opinion. So definitely, like you said, the earliest you can get that intervention in, the better. Because again, if your child is primarily communicating via aggression and you just are like, this is fine and there's six or seven, we can work on that. But then all of a sudden your child's 12 and now you're, they're still being aggressive with you. You're going against 12 years of that behavior being acceptable, being taught that it's okay and being taught that it will get you that communication that you want. So again, the earlier that you see a challenging behavior, that you see those behaviors that you're like, I don't think this is a, a good way to communicate or this is not okay, definitely get those opinions in there and definitely start that journey. So talking about then tantrums, uh, and then there's the distance learning and the pandemic. So I guess this is two different things. I guess, I guess tantrums we may have covered a little bit, but with distance learning and the pandemic, and I feel like sometimes things are so abstract, it's really hard to explain and address. So when it comes to the whole distance learning and the pandemic, do you have any advice as to how to discuss those? Or is it even necessary to discuss them with your child? I think it is somewhat necessary because obviously, you know, using your child as an example and other children too, they're going to know something's up. And so if you don't address it with them, then you're kind of creating this um, atmosphere of mistrust like okay something's different but mom and dad aren't addressing it so I don't feel like I can trust them so being as transparent that's a big thing for me with all the kids that I work with is trying to be as transparent as is appropriate now like you said to your point of how to explain it when it is this like big quote-unquote terrifying thing of like the pandemic and we can't go outside and we have to do all this kind of stuff I think just breaking it down into like, what is the main message here that I'm trying to communicate to my child is that, okay, we can go outside. Why can't we go outside? Because it's not safe because there's a virus. So just trying to break down what is the core message I want my child to get out of this. And then if you really just laser focus into that, then just tailor your message around that and then let the conversation like we did tonight, let the conversation flow. If they have questions, great. If they're just like, got it, we're not going outside, then you got an easy conversation to have there. If, if the kid's like, this is great, good. So I think letting your child be, quote unquote, the director of that conversation. Like, I've got something to tell you, here's what it is. And then letting them kind of take the lead of like, okay, I have some questions are, okay, I'm good. Thanks for the update. 
I'll be in my room playing my Nintendo. <laughs> let me know when it's safe. I may not go back outside, but let me know when this is done. <laughs> and that's one of the points that you can then enjoy that. Exactly. You don't have to break it down to like, well, there's this disease and we haven't handled it well and we're getting this vaccine, but the vaccine may be so... Your child's like, I got it. We can't go outside. Done. I love that. Um, okay, so there is a lot of concern with age-appropriate behavior. I, I see a lot of concerns, and sometimes the concern is with behavior, you know, that would never be questioned really in a typical child, like uh, liking the Muppets or going to Disneyland or a favorite toy. Can you talk on that, both the acceptance and then when to identify something or do you need to identify? Can they just, just like they like to, just like somebody likes to pop their neck? Can they just like Disneyland? Can they just uh, wear the shirt with the Muppet on it? So the big thing that I try and identify is um, how does this impact them in their environment? So like you said, if this, if it's something that they like and they're able to move on from it, like, let's say, you know, this child is 14 years of age, but they still like to play with Legos where all the other kids in their classroom are playing Fortnite or, you know, whatever else. If the child is able to put the Legos down and then go interact with their peers, then that's fine that they're taking that time to go play with the Legos. But if that's all they want to do, then that's what we would call a barrier to socialization. And that's when we need to address it. It's okay. Again, like you said, if that child enjoys it, if it's a little childlike, I mean, I'm 35 years old and I still love Disney movies. That's fine. You know, I love it. Robin Hood from 1973 is a classic. I'll say that out loud. But like, <laughs> I, I still watch Law and Order. I still do all this kind of other stuff. So it's like, is it a barrier or is it just something that's like more of a hobby? So first, like I said, identify that kind of stuff. And then for me, how I kind of keep myself grounded too, I'll share a little bit about my personal life here too, is that um, I'm very heavily actively involved in my church and I do like fourth grade Sunday school. And then I also work with the youth of the church. And so they, they don't know it, but they're kind of my litmus test of like, oh, other fourth graders are doing this. It's okay if I see one of my clients doing that. And that's, I do share that with the parents that they're like, well, are other kids doing this? Yeah, I work with the kids at my church and they're like, I seen second graders doing this. It's fine. So find some way to, to really evaluate, not maybe like one or two kids, but really a good sample size of like, okay, talk to your kid's teacher. Like, okay, Johnny's still into this. And the teacher might be like, yeah, all the kids are still into that. Then it's like, that's okay. So really just going to kind of your child's teachers or um, whatever you might have and saying like, you know, I noticed that he's still into this or whatever. Is this okay? The teacher might be like, no, they can't read their stories because they're too focused on this, you know, this one story. That's a barrier. Or they might be like, yeah, I've seen other kids do that. It's okay. Give yourself that validation, parents, to go and ask, is this okay for my child to do this? Because again, really for like your guys' example, if it's in school, if it's preventing them from accessing the curriculum, that's when it needs to be addressed. And then at home, if it's preventing them from interacting with their siblings, peers, are doing daily living skills, like they won't go brush their teeth or take a shower because they're just watching the Muppets for five hours on end, that's a problem. We need to address it, obviously. Yeah, to be a little easier on, 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 on the case, too, because I, I understand that if it's something that's blocking something, yes. But, I mean, being from Louisiana, I have hundreds of people I've known in my life that – always wear an LSU hat, 
wear LSU shirts, t-shirts everywhere. They have a room that's completely decorated in purple and gold. That's they 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 all they think about is is LSU in, in certain times that can of the year. That cause a barrier. But it's but it's you know, and we've gone to Disneyland and seen people that dress up as the characters and probably go once a week and 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 have all the pins they collect. But that's just a hobby, right? So. So when can you, you you have to evaluate that? Like you said, when is it more than a hobby? And that's really when to concentrate on it. And you would call in like a behavioralist, or you would get a behavioralist. But let me let me just say, um, let's just say they play with Legos. Let's say your child plays with Legos, and you feel like they're too. But Legos is something that adults play with yeah. all the time. First of all, so that you know. But if you're still judging that, if is, is it a barrier? It meaning that 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 behavior isn't just I'm playing with Legos, but I'm going to eat, drink, and live Legos. That's unhealthy. Like Stephen's viewpoint, and I think that's a really great example. I've seen it too. Those people at Disneyland that had the pins and are like so into it. You're not living at Disneyland, are you? Because that's a problem. But if you're leaving that environment to go do your work and you're like, I'll be back in a week or two, that's okay. But like you said, Lori, if it is an all-consuming thing, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to brush my teeth. I'm not going to take care of my own personal self. I'm not going to interact with other people. That's, again, where you're going to get that behaviorist in here and be like, they are what we call rigid and they're very fixated on that kind of stuff. Whether or not it's age appropriate at that point is irrelevant because the bigger picture then is like, it's a barrier for them to live their lives. So what I'm hearing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is it's not so much the judgment of what is age appropriate because that goes across the gamut of society as to the different um, likes and dislikes and hobbies, but is it detrimental and creating a barrier yeah, and all consuming absolutely if, and that's my first thing when parents are like well they kind of do this i'm like okay we can definitely address that but is it something that is really a barrier or is it just something you don't like and so then it kind of it's not again a cop out but it's like if we're going to address this we're going to address it very strategically and very intensively too so your child could be in for some really rough moments here like do you really want to fight this battle or is it just okay that you know for an hour a day, they go off to the room and they play with Legos. Oh, okay. I'm totally okay with that. And that's honestly how we would address it too, just to kind of take it further is that we would establish for the child, it's appropriate to do this for this amount of time, but we're not going to do it for like, you know, the whole day. Like we got to move on. Life still goes on. You got to eat. You got to go to school, that kind of stuff. Right. So is that when we would visit the EATS, the E-A-T-S, and then we would as parents revisit that that list of is it escape attention tangible self-stimulatory so it's not just a hobby now it's is it one of those and then we would we would and could as parents start to try to address it and do replacement and those kind of things before we could if we didn't have a behavioralist right at hand and then obviously if it's something that we saw that then we had to go through this whole process to get a behavioralist these are some things that we could some signs some signs and some some supports and tools that we have I'm going to tell you right now, if they're doing it for that long of a time, it's probably honestly self-stimulatory. Again, self-stimulatory presents in a number of ways. Again, it's just something that they do because it, if they enjoy it. It feels good to them. So yeah, you would definitely go through that checklist. Nine times out of 10, it's going to say self-stimulatory. And then you're going to be like, okay, Johnny, again, you can do your Legos from three to three 30, but then at three 30, we're done. We're going to go move on. And then you can even offer it as like a reinforcement. Like if you can do your homework, if you can brush your teeth in this amount of time, you earn more Lego time. So it's again, reinforcing for the child to do it. You know that they love the Legos. We don't want to do like, they really like Legos and it's a problem. It's a barrier. We're never going to let them play Legos again. That's, I've seen parents do that. I'm like, no, 
No, that's the yeah. worst idea possible. That's going to be a problem. Because now you've deprived that child of something that's motivating for them. And now the child is just like going to seek that out constantly. Use it as a reward, maybe. When we say reinforcer, yeah, we the term is also reward. I like yeah. I like reinforcement. I like yeah, reinforcement. Good. So with the behavior and and you know you you seek other peers and and see what's something uh, that is this something that the peers do mm-hmm. correct? You know a little bit about behavior in school because our personal experience is sometimes Liam is held to a different bar and behavior than his peers, like some things that his peers participate in, he would get in trouble for doing. So there's the double standard of, you know, Liam has Down syndrome and he has, he has these supports, but he's not allowed to make the same mistakes or have that same learning curve as a typical child. Yeah. You know, a good example of that, I think was last year, I remember him picking his finger. This was probably something that had had some dried skin on his finger and he pulled it and it, it bled. Well, it was, reassuring when the when the the BII said oh, I actually did that two weeks ago you know it's just it's dry out and I just picked it in but it could have became become something else where you go oh wait is this is this something we have to address but also no I'm I'm talking about when we went to his school to do a birthday celebration and I'm you know kids have a little you know, energy and they're allowed to run around so they're just running around and they're being kids but Liam went, he sat down at the table, he, he put his head, like, he was so properly he was behaved really because well behaved. Mm-hmm. he's he's held to a different bar and there's different, he experiences consequence and uh, responsibility, which is, this, you want that to create the positive behaviors, but then sometimes I feel a little bad that if he ran out screaming and ran to the, the playground and, and and did some something like screamed at a kid inside the playhouse, it would be looked at. It would be viewed differently. Right away, he'd be non-compliant. He'd be non-compliant. That's the, that's the vocabulary. He would be we transitioning to. to a. I mean, there'd be there'd be so it would be written down. There'd be so many things. Can you speak to parents because I know other parents probably experience that that their kids don't have the same luxury luxury of behaving like really a kid. kid a yeah. kid. I think that's a very good way to describe it is they don't have that luxury. And that, you know, like I said, before I got into ABA, I was a teacher. And, you know, I do see that sometimes, you know, owning my own bias that, yeah, those kids that do have those supports, they are held to a different standard, whether it be a good standard or a bad standard. It's not fair. It's not healthy for the child. And I'll speak to kind of like you said earlier about stereotypical behaviors. I had a client in the school system. I'm trying to remember exactly. Um, his aide was like, oh, he's getting really excited and like, he's having a good time. And like, is it a problem? Like, do I need to address him? Like, well, why is he getting excited? Like, what's he, what's, why is he doing this? Well, his team won a kickball. Well, then let him celebrate that. Like, why would we not want to let them celebrate that? Like, again, not trying to put myself on a pedestal here, but it really comes <laughs> down to the behavioralist here of like, let kids be kids. Like, yes, these children have delays. They have challenges. You know, those kids that are, again, aggressive and running out of the room, those are definitely things that need to be addressed. But if they're, like you said, at that birthday party, let the kid run around and have a good time. Like, that's what's, what's the harm in allowing that? Like, there is no harm at that point, really, especially if, you know, I've been a teacher and I've had kids come in with birthday parties and it's all mania and it's chaos on deck and everything like that. 
So why should that one child that does need more support not be allowed to enjoy it like everybody else? Again, I think it goes to you're now again depriving that child of something that is okay for them to access to for them to enjoy. Like again, every other kid's gonna do that. Why would we not want him to express himself in a fun way too? Well, you can go ahead and put yourself on a pedestal, Kyle, yeah, because 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 we have put you on a pedestal. Yes. We we think very highly of your expertise and also just your supports and the way that you've always seen seen Liam pushing him and supporting him to his potential. And that's really what we'd want for every family is to have that kind of a team and support system and communication with their behavioralist that sees your your child the way you see your child, or even better, seeing that potential and helping pull you into, you know, the, the light of what their, their potential is and out of the fears that don't belong to us. Um, so that's what we wish for every parent is for them to, to, have, to have the kind of support that, that we have with you. And I've always felt that the behavioralist is that cornerstone of the team. Yeah. And that could also be because you, you, we worked with you, but that's how we built our team was around around you. And I would say that goes back to, like you said earlier, Lori, the communication. Like, it really does come down to having that open and honest communication. And, you know, like I said, I'm there to support them in school, but it's really like, how do I support your vision of them in school? Like, what? Okay, because we've talked at this IEP. These are the goals that we want to have. This is how I, as a behavioralist, will address them. But really, is that something that the parents will carry on at home? Because why would I devise a system that the parents aren't okay with, or B, is very diametrically opposed to what the parents are doing at home? Then the child's just going to have one system at school, one system at home. So it just goes to, again, open and honest communication and really getting to understand each other here. And parents, I encourage you to to do that. Like if you had that, this is the team that you're creating and know that you're creating it for your child. So whether it be in-home services, you have the right to keep going until the pieces of the puzzle fit. And if you're going into school and you're looking for an IEP, you're going into your IEP, whether it be your first one because your child's three years old and entering preschool or into a different grade or at a different milestone, know that you have, now you have a little more knowledge as to what the the words mean and what the services are and you f- you follow your gut and everybody's gut's going to do serve them so like what was good for us isn't necessarily good for the next person but but do what you feel is right not only for your child but for your family and for the entire team that you're creating because that's so supporting and it's and it's a big part behavior is a big part of of your life and and you want someone who's also going to to, to do that, nudge you every once in a while and shine a light and say, hey, this is just, everybody has behaviors. Everybody has moments. Everybody has this. So find that, find someone who has empathy and have that same empathy for yourself and for your process and journey. Well, this is the If We Knew Then podcast. And we always think, if we knew then, what would we do differently? So can I pose you that question and see if you had an If We Knew Then statement? And, and, and maybe it, it would be you know, more it might advice, be more, right? Yeah, I don't, you know, you might have it if you knew then, like when you first started or something that changed for you or, or you know, how has it changed? How long have you been doing this, Kyle? Like I said, so in the education realm, I've been doing this since I was 18. Like when I was in college, I was a substitute teacher and I'd come home on the winter breaks. My mom worked in the district, so a lot of the teachers knew me. So I've been in education 
literally since I was 18, 19 years old, but in this realm of behavioral, since about the year 2015, so about five, six years here. So if I knew then what I knew now, I would definitely realize that the child's potential is really limitless. Like it really does depend not really on them, but the environment that they are brought into. And if you have a really supportive environment like you guys do, and I will say that, and a team that really keeps, you know, the child at the focus, that child will exceed whatever the circumstances are. And, you know, again, I'm not trying to get too um, forthcoming, but you guys have a huge team. Like I think from any client that I've worked with, your child's team is by far the biggest <laughs> one that I've ever worked with. And I think we're, we can be honest and recognize that we're not always gonna get along, but if we keep the goals mindful of like supporting the client and the child, then that's what we're all here for. We're, that's what brought us to this table is that we love children. We want to see them grow. We want to see them reach their fullest potential. So again, always keeping the child as the center focus has never served me wrong. It has always gotten me to where I want my goals to be and to get that parent buy-in when they're like, I don't know about that goal. I'm Then I always say, well, it's going to help your child really become the truest version of themselves and really reach their potential if we try it my way. Yeah, I, I, I do recall one time when I, I became a product of the system that I had been up against and something and you had to talk me down because I was like, no, this is what is this because you had changed something. And I remember it, it I think it was the one of the first times where I went, I remembered that I could, I had created such a distrust you know, and especially with school, we have conversations and we have episodes about IEPs because of some of the, the fights that I had, I had been put into and, and, and I had participated in because I'm, I'm fighting for my child. And sometimes that can create this foundation. Edginess. It's a <laughs> foundation of distrust where, yeah. where you learn that you stop, you say no. Like I, I just, I don't like that. This, and then I spout, start spouting off like laws. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Section and, 304 in the, and, uh, uh, and an email and with just, att attorney yeah, attached to it. And I was like, Whoa, this is a different side, but I understand now where you guys are coming from. And it was just, again, there was that communication breakdown. I hope you guys, if I'm remembering the conversation, right there wasn't anything that I was not trying to do. It was just, I wasn't aware. And so I had to educate myself on. And then, you know, Kyle, actually it wasn't something that you had done at all. I was completely wrong about a situation and I'm, I can always admit when I'm wrong, I was completely wrong. You had mentioned something and it looked like it looked at the verbiage looked a lot like a conversation that was something that we had fought for, for a long time. And I reacted and maybe it's because you're a behavioralist. You knew how to handle me. <laughs> you let me talk. But that I think it was that was the turning point. That was when I realized that my team is my team. And, and Liam's team is Liam's team. And to not just see everyone as the same person or the person who might cause challenge. Because if you have a good team, they're going to be there to support your child. Just even what you said about your if you knew then about reaching potential, I think that that's why we appreciate you so much and you're and you're such a gift and you've been so generous with your time tonight. We appreciate you on a professional level and a personal level. We thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome. And I will say too, if I can get on my soapbox for a minute, 
ABA has been around for quite some time, but it didn't always have a positive image too. Early ABA was very much like, we're gonna sit at the table, do this work. And you know, like it was very punishment derivative as well too. But now in this new generation, it is more like, how do we support? How do we get the natural growth too? So thank you for allowing me to kind of, you know, from my point of view, dispel some of what the rumors are about what behavioralists is like, we're not going to make your child to the table for five hours at a time. We're not going to tell them no all the time. That's not what we do. That's what people used to do, to be fair. Like that is what it started out as, but now we've grown so much for that. So I want to thank you guys for allowing me to use this to further that message. Do you have any recommendations of books or resources or uh, places that uh, parents can look? I know that Nikki McCrory was on did the first episode in the series and she mentioned the website and that people could put questions there as well. Does that go for behavior as well? They could reach back to the McCrory website. They could definitely reach back to the McCrory website. Um, a book that I've read that I would recommend is the reason I jumped the inner voice of a 13 year old boy with autism. And so this is a really great book that I've read and it is the inner journey of a 13 year old boy from Japan with an autism diagnosis and really explaining why he does the things that he does. And I love that book. And because again, like I said, your child may not always be able to vocalize why they're doing the things they do. So this book may be a great resource for you here to do that, like to get that understanding. And then I don't know if it's kind of cheesy or not, but a great social media resource that I do use because she does post resources. It's an Instagram account called uh, Life with Grayson and Parker. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's a mom, she's in here in California. She has two children, both on the autism spectrum, and she is constantly a great advocate for her child, for her children. She's always talking about um, her oldest son uses an AAC, an uh, iPad device to communicate. And so she's always posting tips on how to work with that, to deal with, because again, her children do engage in some of those stereotypical behaviors. They do ABA and she's very transparent and honest about, like you said, the journey of a parent's point of view, because again, I think, and it's not a bad thing, but so much of the focus is on the child, but the really, you got to look at the parents too, and the siblings too. Like if you can get your kid into a, a one resource I would recommend is if you can get your child sibling into some kind of workshop that allows them to feel how they feel and to process that too, that's really helpful. Like that's something that we, that McRory, you mentioned the name, so I can mention it too. McRory does do sib shops. So yeah. Um, because again, so much of the focus is on a child naturally and rightfully so, but I think that leads to some resentment sometimes with the siblings of like, oh, the parents are always focused on my brother. Like they have some feelings too about this kind of thing. And I think if you're really looking at the whole family, like their voice needs to be heard too on this journey. But yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Are going to see Liam? Oh, wait, let's get oh, yeah. Liam. Hold on. Liam. Liam. Hey, buddy. Oh, you've gotten so tall. Hi. Oh, Liam, you're making me so happy. Are you happy? Yes. I like your Star Wars shirt. That's really cool. No, 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 Star Wars. It is so worse. Star Wars. Yes, yes. Hi, hi, doing? I'm doing much, much better now that I got to see you, buddy. It's really good to see you. Yes, me too. All right, bye, bye Liam. Kyle. Goodbye. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. 
And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and